Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. And we go back to J.D. Rockefeller's statement that I will pay more. Interesting. Here's the guy that made his money from oil. He didn't say, I'll pay more for the guy that can find oil. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I'll find, I'll pay more to the guy that can get more value out of a barrel at the refinery. He didn't say that. He said, I will pay more to the guy who can, quote, manage. And he was not talking about motivating. He was talking about pulling the levers of power everywhere he needed to pull them. He needed to pull them in the federal government. He needed to pull them in the state governments um, because everywhere he operated, he had to make peace with those people. And they were not, you know, they they weren't ready to, to give Rockefeller a global national, a national global monopoly on, on the production and distribution of, uh, of gasoline and, and oil products. That was not like a natural thing. There were a lot of other companies involved. Um, they, though all those companies had a, had a degree of political influence and power. So that was a war, right? And that was a, a war that Rockefeller won. And it was, and it was a war. I mean, they were things like refineries being dynamited in the middle of the night and nobody knew how it happened. I mean, it, it was, it was wild and crazy. And, there is a theory. I'm going to go. This now is in the realm of unproven, but it's very interesting, uh, and it talk, and it and it speaks to logistics. You've heard of prohibition, right? Yeah, of course. Okay, right. right. Everybody's everybody heard of it. And and what was prohibition about? The evils of alcohol and how it had to be. Uh, you know, people had to not be allowed to have alcohol to, to help all of America's evils. There you go. I mean, what what could be what could be more marvelous? Now, if you know American history before. Uh, certainly before prohibition, but even after, we're, in, we're a hard drinking country. I mean, maybe a little less so now, but, but, um, certainly, certainly from the days of the founding fathers, uh, you know, we had the whiskey rebellion. And the reason we had the whiskey rebellion is like, you know, whiskey was such an important commodity for the development of this country that, that when they raised the taxes on it, literally the farmers in, in parts of this country actually went to war and had to be and had to be brought down by the U.S. military. Uh, that's how serious that war was, right? So we are we are a country based on the consumption of alcohol for the purposes of uh, consciousness alteration, you know, or 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 uh, or, or self-administered uh, ethanol poisoning. You know, we're 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 based on that. So tell me, how did a bunch of church ladies convince an all-male, hard-drinking? U.S. political structure to make the consumption of alcohol or the manufacture of alcohol illegal. How did that happen? Who funded that? Well, you, you might not be surprised to know that was funded by J.D. Rockefeller because he had a, he had pangs of conscience. And as a good Baptist, he felt that alcohol was the ruination of society. And he thought these ladies, by God, they had a great idea. I'm going to fund them. And, uh, next thing you know, all these guys that I'm sure were drinking like fish <laughs> decided to, to ban 
uh, their most important recreational activity. How long did prohibition last? Well, it lasted for a fixed period of time. Would you believe that coincidentally, at the time that prohibition started, uh, o- automobiles could be run on either alcohol or gasoline? And by the, and by the end of prohibition, there was a nationwide service station network so that one could drive from one end of this country to the other and be able to count on gasoline. And that's when prohibition was lifted. Now, I'm not saying those two things are related. <laughs> but, but I'm saying that these guys are playing three-dimensional chess and they are not clueless when it comes to, to manipulation of society. And, and which brings us to, this is a really, that's a really important topic. And then, and then we're going to get back to political corruption. Um, Edward Bernays, uh, this, this is such an important person to understand, Edward Bernays. And previous, start, not until the, the Enlightenment, right? The, the 1700s, it began. And then the 1800s, you started to have universal, uh, literacy. And then you had a certain amount of, um, uh, because of, because of industrialization, people actually had a little bit more political power. You know, when you're a farmer out in the middle of the, 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 the boondocks, you know, raising your, your annual crop, um, yeah. there's not a whole lot you, you know, you, not a whole lot you can do. You might be prosperous, but, but however, when you start having concentrations of people in the cities and they start making money and saving money and now you have real estate going on and retail sales and, and then, and now people are going to school and it became necessary to run this industrial uh, machine to actually educate people. So suddenly we had education and we had universal literacy. And then now we had publishing. People don't get, like everyone thinks, oh, you know, the, the Gutenberg Bible, that changed everything. Not really. Not really. You, until the, until post Civil War, you had to have big bucks to have a, a personal library in your home. You might have one Bible. You might have one document printed thing in your home, uh, pre Civil War. And it would have been a family Bible, meaning it was passed down generation by generation you did not have you didn't go to the bookstore you didn't go to barnes noble <laughs> you didn't go to amazon and just get whatever book you wanted so it wasn't until the industrialization of the world that we had universal literacy and access to printed material and the ability for people to actually generate their own printed material so this is a relatively new thing that changed the power dynamic in the world radically and it weakened the people that run things, uh, who own things. You know, previous to that, not, and not that much earlier, you know, go back to the 1700s and we've got, you know, the king of France and we've got, you know, it was, it was all kings and dukes and, and, and princes and, 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 and these were not ceremonial titles. This was absolute authority. You know, the church had the ultimate authority and then the church would sort of parcel out, okay, we're going to let you run France. Um, just make sure you kick back, you know, our share, but we're going to claim that you're ordained by God. So this is your territory. And, you know, if the king won, and literally th- th- this was only 200, well, let's see, we're 2020. We have to go back maybe 250 years. Literally, the king could send somebody to your house right now because of this conversation, pull you out of the door. And have your head chopped off right on the spot because you've offended him. Yeah. That's only, that's only 250 years ago. So all of, so if we talk about institutions and absolute power and corruption and pathology and psychopaths running things and, and an absolute disregard for decency and, and humanity, 
that was kind of the norm of the elite for the most part. I mean, occasionally you'd have an enlightened king, but they were so rare, they're, they're legendary. It was pretty much whoever was the biggest thug in town, uh, who could, who could collect the biggest collection of thugs in town that ran things. And depending on how, you know, psychopathic they were, they were either horrible or unbelievably horrible, but it, but it was, you know, somewhere in that continuum. That was humanity. And, and the control was basically violence. And there was sort of the psychological control exerted by the church. Cause, you know, you know, until the Protestant Reformation, the church, they ran the show, like birth, marriage, death, you know, we, we gotcha. And, um, no, you're not going to be able to understand those things we're saying in the weekly mass you have to attend because we're going to do it in Latin. <laughs> You know, just assume we know what we're doing, you know? So like all these things that happened, you know, the, 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 the translation of the Bible in, into vernacular. I mean, that was like radical. And that's only four or five hundred years ago. So, so we, so, so when you look at today, we think, oh, we're so modern and everything, but we're basically this very, very thin, um, tiny sliver of history where you have universal literacy. You have people who can read books. And for the most part, uh, people have been really under the thumb and the people at the top, whoever are running the powerful organizations, um, still have that same mentality. Now here's, here's where we get into Edward Bernays. The power shifted and it became obvious that we can't thug our way, uh, into making people do what we want. We have to persuade them. And Edward Bernays was a, was the nephew of Sigmund Freud and he was uh, really enamored of his uncle's theories on the unconscious and irrational motivations and so on. During World War I, um, you know, got to remember, America was its own place. We weren't really involved with Europe. We weren't really interested in Europe. Uh, we had no reason to be involved in World War I because that was a family dispute between one branch of a family in Germany and another branch of a family in England for the domination of Europe. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Commercial domination of Europe. It, there was no moral issue at stake in the, you know, no, no one was being taken to camps. There was no slave labor going on. None of that was going on. It was just pure. We want to steal your stuff. No, we want to steal your stuff. And, and they were just fighting it out. So we had no reason to be in that war. And England, which is very, 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 very clever at propaganda. Um, just historically, you know, remember Eng England started out as basically a rural island, you know, without a whole lot going on. And, 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 and it, and its primary, uh, industry was raising sheep <laughs> and piracy. I mean, it really, that's how they made their money. And, um, they ended up basically taking over the world and, um, because they were very ambitious and they were masters of propaganda and psychological warfare. They're very, 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 very good at it. 
because they started out in an underdog position. Because remember, when they when they and I, I seem to be going in a lot of directions, but it, but it really all fits together. So when they were getting started, they were just this little rural island country, and then you had Spain, which had all the money in the world, owned the whole Western Hemisphere, had gold being shipped to them by the you know hundreds of tons every year from the New World. I mean, they, you know, they had it. They had the lock on everything. And then you had this little Protestant England, you know, trying to hold its ground. And that, that underdog mentality fostered in them a high degree of intelligence and cunning and strategy. And, and they, they succeeded in sort of flipping the scenario and basically essentially taking over the world. You know, the, ni- the 19th century belonged to England. They were in every country running everything. So anyway, they're very good at propaganda. So when they went to war with Germany in World War One. They realized they needed help, and they realized they needed to somehow tap the United States. Now, there are a lot of Germans that live in the United States. In fact, I think there was a period of time where there were more people of German-American ancestry in the United States than English-American ancestry. Um, Americans, until recently, were militant about drinking coffee and not tea because they remembered way back (laughs) to the 1700s when the English were thugs beating them up. And that's one of the reasons Americans are coffee drinkers more than tea drinkers. We, we, we rejected the English product and, and went with coffee. You know, that's changed because we you know, forget. So we did not have a national, we did not have a national proclivity to, um, jump in that war on England's side. So England sent their top propaganda experts to work with uh, Woodrow Wilson and a thing called the Creel Committee. This is a very important moment in American history. C-R-E-E-L, Creel Committee, was founded. And the Creel Committee's job was to persuade Americans that we should send our young men and spend and shed their blood and spend our money going to fight in a purely European war that was basically a dynastic war between two branches of two greed head families that, you know, who cared who, which one of them went? It really didn't matter. But England persuaded. Now it got, now in Canada, and this, this seems like it's going off the deep end, but, but follow me. In Canada, where you didn't have, where, 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 where the English ran Canada and the, and the German people were a minority, you had actual violence against, um, German Canadian citizens. Um, you had cities, you know, there was a Berlin, Ontario was, had its name changed, I think, to Waterloo. Um, like, so it, it, it was not only, not only could you not speak up on behalf of Canada not going to war on the English side, if you did, well, you couldn't, not only could you not speak up on behalf of it, just being a German Canadian was dangerous to your health, uh, including losing your position if you were a university professor. That's how strong the propaganda was in Canada. And so, so, so you had this career committee and their job was to design propaganda to persuade the average American that the Hun were the world's worst people and that we had to get behind the Brits. And they did things like they trained over 2,000, uh, quote, spontaneous speakers who would go to movie theaters and jump up while the reel was being changed and give these fake emotional appeals of how terrible it was that the Germans were so terrible and the British were so wonderful and we've got to go and help, you know. Um, that was one of their strategies. Um, but anyway, there were, there were two people on the Creel, many people involved in this Creel committee, but there were two people. One was Ivy Lee and the other was a guy named Edward Bernays. Ivy Lee went to work for Rockefeller 
And then Rockefeller actually loaned Ivy Lee to the Nazis uh, in the 1930s. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And you may say, well, my God, Ken, what is this all about? Okay, we, we, the industrialists of the world, the Rockefellers of the world, the DuPonts of the world, loved Hitler. They loved him in the early days. They, they may have always loved him, even afterwards. But in the early days, they loved him. Why? Because he was organizing Europe on, on an, on, in a way that made it easy for the Rockefellers to make money and the DuPonts and all those people to make money. They, instead of all these disparate countries going their own way and having to deal with 10 different countries, it was all going to be under one flag and, and a guy that was bribable. Like and the European Union. Well, yeah, I mean, in Europe, it, it's, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But, and they loved Mussolini for the same reason. He was going to, like, get rid of the labor unions, going to beat down labor. He was going to elevate the, the, the corporation. And uh, it's gonna, he was going to rationalize everything. The trains were going to run on time. He was going to be an easy guy to deal with. So uh, now Hitler had public relations problems just like everybody. So Rockefeller literally loaned him his chief uh, PR guy, uh, uh, Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels, who was the PR um, commander of the Nazi government, um, was a huge fan of Edward Bernays. In fact, Edward, Edward Bernays wrote a book called The Crystallization of Public Opinion. And, and, and Goebbels thought so highly of that book that he had stacks of it in his office. And every time he had a meeting with somebody, he would give the person a, that book to take home. Now, little no, everybody's heard of Kristallnacht, right? I'm sure you yeah, have. The right? night of broken glass. Yeah. Yeah. Kristallnacht, yeah. 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 Except if you speak German, crystal does not mean glass. And it doesn't mean mirror. And it doesn't mean any of the things that were broken oh. that night. So I ask you, where did, where did the term crystal come from in Kristallnacht? It came from Edward Bernays's book, The Crystallization of Public Opinion. Kristallnacht was a basically a, Nacht was basically a, public relations, I mean, a sinister one and a violent one, but it was a live demo. It was a demo, <laughs> you know, it was like, it was an event. It was a PR event. So what they did was one night, it was, it was a night, which spread out and it ultimately spread out into multiple days, but it had an initial boom where there was this one night where they sent out all the thugs to break all the windows and all the stores owned by Jewish um, uh, merchants. And they called it Kristallnacht. And amazingly, nobody has ever asked, what's the source of that name? Because it has, there's, they didn't break crystal and, and, and fen, it, a window, store window is fenced it's not crystal. So, uh, I put two and two together on that and I, and, and it's known that Goebbels was a huge fan of Bernays. It's known that he, he gave that book out. And I just have to assume, and he used, he used an Edward Bernays technique. One of, one of Edward Bernays' many techniques, um, and, and it's not really new to him. But it was having the the big launch, the big day, the big the big ex- promotional explosion, where you have this event that that captures the headlines and starts the the tongues wagging. Okay, that that is a a, a tried and true method, especially when you're trying to do something national or inter- international. So one of Edward Bernays's um, greatest hits was persuading uh, women in America to smoke cigarettes. And you may say, what are you, what's this all about? You're going to see this is all connected. Um, previous to Bernays's campaign, it was considered like 
you know, whores smoke cigarettes. Like, it's like smoking crack. Like, no, no decent woman is going to smoke crack, you know, or, or, you know, but, and and so luckily women had the intelligence and they didn't have the money too, by the way, because tobacco was expensive. They didn't smoke. Women didn't smoke. Imagine that. They didn't smoke. So, uh, the cigarette makers, uh, one guy in particular, I forget his name, um, went to Bernays and said, look, uh, you know, the only way we're going to grow this market and you know, I know every businessman knows if you want to make money, you got to grow your market. And so they went to Bernays and said, how are we going to grow the market? And Bernays came up with the brilliant idea of, well, we could double the market if we got women to smoke. And then he had the challenge, how are we going to get women to smoke when it's considered a sleazy, dirty, anti-feminine, disgusting habit? How are you going to get women to do that? And you do that with psychological warfare, which is what um, Bernays learned both from his experience in the Creel Committee working directly with these master propagandists from the UK, and he also learned studying his uncle's work on the unconscious. And so what he did was he went out and he studied the psychology of women. And he discovered that women are extremely fashion conscious. I don't think this is a sexist thing. I just think it's true. You know, men, you know, blue jeans and a T-shirt, we're good. You know, uh, blue suit, red tie, white shirt, we're ready to go. We can wear that every day of the week. We're never going to be embarrassed. Uh, women just don't do that, can't do that, whatever, society, whether it's socially induced or biologically induced. Whatever, you know, we don't know why it is, but we just know women like that. They like to change their fashion. So he, he got to, he, he did a very deep dive into the understanding of fashion and he, he started Believe, I mean, this is how, this is how detailed this campaign was. He took the, the color of Marlboro. Marlboro used to have a, a, a green cover. It turned red later, but it, it used to have a green cover. And he went to all the fashion houses and started selling them on making that the color of the year. Okay. This is how, when I talk about industrial, see, like, indicates reach, vision, reach, and scope of operations. Now, you have a business, I have a business, we're small business people, it's just me and my wife, and, and you know, we have some vendors, and, and I don't know how big your business is, but, like, we do business, we make money, we're doing fine, but I don't operate with thousands of, I don't have thousands of operatives at my command, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I can't call up the head of a Vogue magazine and say, I want you to make green the color this year. I, I don't have that kind of leverage. But here's the thing. We have to understand there are people that do. And this is going to come full circle of the COVID thing in a bit. But I want you to see how these operations work. So he had the insight and the canniness and the connection and the the personal power to call the editors at Vogue and all these fashion magazines and make this cigarette carton color popular. That was just one of the things he did. The next thing he did was he staged an event, okay? Kind of like Kristallnacht, big, high-profile event that captured everybody's attention, captured the media, and set the tone. Right? If you imagine, if you imagine the the mind as a piece of unshaped clay, right? And if I'm the first person that can get in there on a particular topic and 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 mold the clay, I am so far ahead of anybody that comes after me because they've got to try to unmold it. Right? Right. Okay, so 
why why did the Nazis all go out on one night and do it all at one night and declare it? They wanted to cat the headlines and they wanted to set the tone, right? What what Bernays did, and you have to you have to envision what society was like then. There were no there was no television, there was no radio. All entertainment was live, right? Parades still are a big deal, but in those days, parades were like ten times as significant, maybe a hundred times as significant as they are today. Why? Because there was, there were no movies. There was, you know what I mean? It was like, it was all, and maybe there were movies, but that movies were pretty new. Everything was live. So the idea of like shutting the city down and everybody coming out and watching everybody march, that was a big, 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 big deal. So the biggest deal, one of the biggest deals in America was the annual Easter parade in New York City. Okay. So the whole country looked to, just like they looked even today, they looked to the, to the, to the, uh, Thanksgiving parade, right? The Macy's Thanksgiving parade. Everybody tunes yep. in and, you know, so imagine. Until they destroyed it this year, but yeah. Until the, right, right, exactly, right? But, but imagine the, the power and the persistence of that. Like I'm in Iowa, right? And I'm, why, why am I in Iowa sitting in front of the TV watching the Thanksgiving parade in New York City? I, you know, but, but you know what? It's one of those, persistent cultural things, whether it makes sense or not sense, it has power. So anyway, the Easter parade in New York City in those days had massive power. One of the reasons, demonstration of fashion. Why? New York City women, the richest, the most fashionable people in the world, they're going to wear their best clothes in the Easter parade. There's even a song. Wear my Easter bonnet, do 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 in the Easter parade. All right. So this was the event where all women in America had their minds focused on what are these rich, fancy ladies in New York City going to be wearing at the Easter parade. So what he did was he hired a bunch of fake suffragettes because now, now simultaneous, and this just shows they're playing 3D chess. Okay. These are not unsophisticated people. He's talking with the editors at Vogue. He's engineering the, the, um, the parade. He's also seeing the way the wind is blowing. And this was at the time when women were agitating for the right to vote and had not yet gotten it. And so there was a lot of energy in the air about that. So he got some suffragettes, some young women to march together in the parade. And he stage managed it with the media present. He told them, make sure you're in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral, because something exciting is going to happen. And by the way, that's how all these media events happen. They always, they're, they're not, they're never spontaneous. They always know something's going to happen. They tell the media in advance so that they can be there with their camera. So he, they, he told the media, there's something exciting. Can't tell you what, but make sure you're there with your cameras at front of St. Patrick's. So when the suffragettes, and as the way parades work is they, they have to stop at each corner so the traffic can on the cross streets can go through and then then they resume the parade and it stops and goes and stops and goes that's a new york city parade so you knew these girls were going to stop in front of saint patrick's so the girls stopped cameras were ready they all whipped out cigarettes these fashionable sexually attractive cutting edge avant-garde happening young ladies in the big city all whipped out a cigarette and somebody yelled Torches of Liberty. And that became the meme. We have, you know, we have memes now on the internet. Well, they had memes a hundred yeah. years ago, believe me. And now what he did was with that event, with that moment in time, now, now he stage managed it. He, had, he really thought it out. 
and he had the media there to help pump it. He created a meme that the, that women smoking cigarettes was fashionable, acceptable by the upper class, and a sign of personal freedom and liberation. It was a, it was a crystallizing moment. The crystallization of public opinion. Okay. It's like, if, you know, if you, if you ever took a chemistry course in, you know, in school, they, they have a catalyst, you know, it's the coolest part of chemistry to me. And like, you have this beaker and this liquid in it and you drop like a fleck of something in it and then the whole beaker turns into solid. It's a catalyst. Right. Right. right and, yeah. and, and the same thing happens in society and you can engineer those catalysts if you think it out carefully. All right. So long side, it seems like a you know, like, what are you talking about? How does this have anything to do with the present? This same level of thinking, thor- thoroughness and wiredness and scope and vision and coordination occurs in, ni- in, in 2020. Didn't die with Edward Bernays and the Easter parade. Okay. They do this shit all the time. How do you think they get us into any of these crazy wars? There's not a single war we have been in since World War II, that we had any reason to be in. And yet they managed to get everybody out in the, not only out in the street waving the flag, but shouting down at anybody who dared to question it. Now, eventually everybody wakes up and go, why are we in Vietnam again? You know, why are we in Afghanistan again? But I'm old enough to remember uh, when I was a kid in my social circle, you know, uh, middle class Catholic New Jersey, you didn't question the Vietnam War. Period, right? And uh, even in this country, I, even in this country, I remember uh, when when the and I put it in writing and I time stamped it. I said, if we go into Iraq, it's going to be worse than a thousand Belfasts. You are not going to be able to hold that country together. And it turned out to be literally, in terms of death and financial devastation, worse than a thousand Belfasts. But anyway. I had people just just hinting at that, and I didn't I didn't push it to my customers, but I guess it leaked out that I had that opinion, and I had people un, you know unsubscribe and stop doing business with me. Um, say la vie. I'm know. sure. Yeah. Well, what yeah. about with the the COVID stuff? I'm sure you've had. Well, you know what? It, it's interesting. You in some screen. And, you know, I, I'm in a different position now. You know, I made my money, and 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 I, I you know I'm, I, I mean certainly the government could come and take all my money away and. and impoverish me, I guess, but, but can, that's how it's going to have to happen. <laughs> like it's it's, it's going to be hard to, to exhaust my money supply at this point, you know, and, 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 and I've, I not only have uh, holdings, I, I also have, inc- I live on the income that comes in. Like, like I don't even need to touch my savings. So, so, so whereas back in those days I was, you know, I was worried. I was trying to build a business. Now I don't really care. Like if I, I just feel like I have to, I have to say what I have to say. And uh, if I lose customers over it, so be it. But interestingly enough, uh, except for a couple of people that I don't really care about, one guy was passionate. He goes, how dare you question the, the scientific validity of vaccines? I'm like, <laughs> dude, you got to be kidding. And the funny thing is, I know for a fact this guy is in very poor health, and, and, and he could probably solve his health problem if he, if he had a little intelligence. But that's a whole other story. Um, so yeah, I may, I may have, I, actually, I, I might have, in this case, I might have strained my standing among my customers, believe it or not. But, but even if I lost them, I, in this case, I just had to say whatever I had to say. But, but the point I want to make is, if, if these guys can drive us to war, which is the most extreme 
uh, destructive, uh, self-destructive, immoral um, activity imaginable. I mean, like if you know, if, if they invade us, I'm going to pick up a gun and start shooting. You know, but I'm not. I'm not going to say, hey, let's do aerial bombardment of civilian targets in, in Belgrade. I mean, I'm not going to do that under any circumstance. You know, and yet, and yet, they got millions of Americans to say, yeah, that's a great idea. Not only that. We're going to shout you down if you if you dare question it. So, the fact that they have that wired, that the same they they actually share personnel. The, the, the Pentagon PR and 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 the and the CDC and NIH um, share personnel. They share methodologies. I'm sure they go to similar trainings. Um, they actually sometimes do joint operations. In fact, I mean, what is it? Operation Warp Speed. They have a they have a general running that. Huh. I didn't realize oh my God! Oh my God, guys! Everybody, if you don't, if you're not aware of that really? clusterfuck, yeah, please, everybody should uh, um, Google Operation Warp Speed and see who's running it. Uh, it's run Tell by me a little two, bit about what you know. Yeah. Well, it's two people. One's one is a, a medical bureaucrat. The other is a is a guy who's a, gen, a gen, army general who's famous for logistics. Period. I mean, he's got no medical or public health training, and he's completely focused and organized on getting the vaccines delivered and administered. And that's a scary thing. You don't want Pentagon power behind, you know, uh, forcing an experiment. You know, I hope everybody knows. And if, and if you don't know this, you can confirm this yourself. Again, just don't need to read any conspiracy websites. Just go straight to the CDC and the FDA websites. You don't, you don't need to, an NIH website. You do not need to read Alex Jones or, or wonder if, you know, if this was invented in a bio, you know, just read their own bloody websites. This is not a vaccine. This is gene therapy. Okay. And not only do, is, do you think, uh, do you think evil has Tourette's syndrome, meaning that it has to tell you what it's doing? <laughs> I've seen that, I've seen that in movies and you think, oh, it's ridiculous. Why would the bad guy say what he's about to do? But, in real life, it seems like the same thing. It's weird. They, they say they know with confidence that no one. Well, I'll, I'll give an example. So, our one of our presidents was shot in the head from three directions in the in broad daylight in front of hundreds of people, and the guys that did it got away with it. And one of the people that's John F. Kennedy, and one of the people who appears to have been involved was a guy named John Foster Dulles, who had a very big political uh, uh, animus towards Kennedy. And and interestingly enough, Dulles was made head of or one of the key members of the uh, committee to investigate the assassination. And um, he was a lawyer. And uh, one of his jobs, interestingly enough, was to help whitewash all the returning. This is called Operation Paperclip and, and a lot of um, – Nazi physicians and not just Nazi scientists and even Nazi political people were were sheep dipped. They were they were um, given new identities and, and or, or or made to appear to be innocuous and brought into the United States to work for NASA to work oh. for the CIA. This is not this is not theory, by the way. This is not conspiracy theory. This is now established history. We did that for two reasons. One, some of these guys had really useful information. You know, Werner von Braun really knew a lot about. Rocketry. He just happened to use like he really wasn't, and we really wanted him. And the fact that he was a Nazi and that they used slave labor to build the, those V2 rockets, well, you know, we kind of overlooked that and we made him an important person at NASA. So that was one thing. We wanted their technology. The other thing is there was a lot of uh, U.S. corporate, still during the war, there was there was a lot of co- cooperation, ongoing cooperation between U.S. corporations and uh, and the Nazi regime. 
illegally, by the way. And um, there was there was even something like a hundred employees of Chase Manhattan Bank that were stationed in Germany that just kept working throughout the throughout the war. And so so Dulles had two jobs. One was to bring over the useful engineers and scientists, and then his other job was to kind of make these corporate treasonous activities uh, disappear into the uh, into the mist. And, and he succeeded in both. And, and you can you can go back and, and, and find there were hearings about all this, and, and there were some senators that were up in arms. The, 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 uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's father w- was extremely involved in, in, in uh, fin- Nazi financing, working with Nazi industrialists, helping make Nazi money move from Germany to the United States. I mean, it was, it was just lunacy, but they, they got away with it. And, and Roosevelt, who was not a saint, was actually trying to go after these guys, and he just didn't make it. You know, he died. He just was too old, and he was sick, and he died. And Truman was basically – I know they, they canonized Truman as the great, you know, all-American president. But he was basically, a, you know, he wasn't going to do anything substantial. And he was only in for a term anyway, and he let them run wild. And by the time – and, then, and then, they, then they put Eisenhower in charge, and Eisenhower just – really, Eisenhower spent his whole term playing golf and, and – and, and, you know, at the very end of his, when he was on his way out the door, he, said, he gave that famous speech about the military industrial complex and what a danger it was. And, you know, I'm glad he gave that speech, but it might have been better if he fought it while he was actually president. But maybe these guys can't fight it. I don't know. But anyway, anyway, going back to your question about them giving up the, the ghost and, and actually telling us what's going on, what Dulles said as um, was, look, we're going to have a, a – and they – in fact, if you get – I forget what they call the investigation of Kennedy's assassination. It was a – had a name. I forget what it is. But they published their findings. It was 20 volumes. Each volume was 500 pages. And as any good lawyer knows, nobody's going to read all that shit. So if you actually went and read all the documents, there was enough clues in there just from, from what they actually reported to know that there was something completely fishy about the the, uh, the the official story about how Kennedy died. Yeah, some guy who he was a Marine and he, he went to Russia and, and then he came back and it was okay. And and then he, you know, and then suddenly, you know, it's, the whole thing was just ridiculous beyond belief. So anyway, you ask, do they they give up their information? Well, they, they know two things. They know that 99% of people are not going to pay attention. They know that the news media that's in their pocket is not going to really pay attention. They're going to pay attention to the headline, and they're not going to get into the detail. I mean, no one – for instance, how many people can – where have you seen – right? This is, the, this is the biggest story on the planet Earth right now, this vaccine. Yes? Could it, is that fair to say? Yeah, that and COVID, it, I guess. Yeah, yeah but, well, but at this point, at this, let, let's, say, let's say COVID's the novel, and, and the chapter that we're in right now is the vaccine. Is it fair to oh, say I that the chap- I thought the chapter we're in is new mutation? Oh well, that's that's, 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 yeah. that's just that's just a, a little subplot to help push the vaccine story. Believe me, yeah. believe me. But but yeah, I, I get your point that that that's sort of the 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 buzzword right now. But but in terms of if we were in a chapter, like chapter one is the the illness is discovered in China. Right, yeah. <laughs> chapter two is it hits Italy. You know, chapter three, New York, you know, okay, now we're in chapter whatever, the vaccine, the vaccine's going to save us, right? So, but is it, I mean, is it fair more or less to say that that's the biggest story right now, more or less? Yeah, that's true. Okay, 
How many times have you seen in any news outlet anywhere the fact that this vaccine, or it's, well, first of all, that it's not a vaccine, it's gene therapy. That it's not even, and it's not just gene therapy, it's experimental gene therapy. And it's not just experimental gene therapy, it's experimental gene therapy that they have never, they've tried and have never managed to make work. Okay? So they've left all that out, but we'll leave that for, we'll leave that aside. Right. Where else, where have you heard anybody tell you that <laughs> the FDA has never author, has, has authorized this under some Byzantine, uh, legalistic, bureaucratic footnote. This is not a normally, this was not authorized by normal means. I mean, has, that, has anybody mentioned that? Was it done under like emergency use authorization? Yeah. So you know that because you're, you're an informed person. I doubt the average person is aware of that. Now, furthermore, because you're asking is you're like, well, gee, they're telling us, well, all this stuff that I'm talking about, you can, you can find on the FDC's, uh, the, the, the uh, FDA's Plain vanilla website in simple English. They really aren't hiding it. Well, they're, they're hiding it in the sense that there's a headline and the headline says the vaccine is safe and it's approved in quotes. Right. And it's safe. Okay. That's the headline. They are gambling and they're basically, it's a pretty good gamble. I, if I were a betting man, I would bet with them. They are betting that the average person is not going to actually read the fine print. They know the news media is not going to read the fine print. And if the news media does read the fine print, they're not going to report the significance of the fine print. And if the news media does report the significance of the fine print, their business office is going to get a phone call from their pharmaceutical PR friends saying, what are you doing? And that reporter is going to stop the next day. All right. So what people what people don't know and and they have a right to know is this was passed using this thing called emergency use authorization, which is a relatively new deal. This is not something that existed in the uh, 90s. Uh, This is a 2000s invention. Okay, And what basically what it says is in an emergency we can authorize the use of, of, of medical procedures, drugs, whatever, vac- and vaccines. Okay, what constitutes an emergency? Well, they say an emergency. Yeah, that's been redefined along with everything else. Exactly, exactly. When it was, when this, when, when this, and it's all legalistic, by the way, it has nothing to do with medicine, has nothing to do with science. It has to, just like, just like COVID. COVID as a diagnosis has absolutely nothing to do with science. It is a legalistic definition. All right. So the legal originally, and people should know this, the, 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 the original legalistic definition of an emergency was a chemical, biological, or radiological, or nuclear uh, threat, CBRN. Uh, and it was originally cooked up as a way to respond to terror threats. This is, this is the, the legacy of 9-11. Uh, right after 9-11, they got us, not only did they, you know, uh, do whatever they did in New York and, and the Pentagon, they also, uh, scared us to death with, with, with uh, anthrax. And then there was also a scare, which most people forget, that the next thing coming was smallpox. 
and they started talking about, well, if there is a smallpox outbreak, should we have forced vaccination of anti-smallpox? That was all in the air in the 2000s. So anyway, this law, this, this, it's not even a law. I'm not even sure. Maybe Congress authorized it. I don't know. But, but, but basically all this got cooked up that, hey, if we have one of these CBRN, chemical, biological, radiological, neurological attack, nuclear attacks, we're going to be able to, on an emergency basis, do an EUA, an emergency youth authorization, to permit any drug or surgical procedure or vaccine we come up with no matter how lunatic it is, okay? Now, as you point out, that morphed into naturally occurring emerging disease, okay? No emphasis on the word emerging. Why do you think when this thing first hit the media, not when it first appeared on the planet, because we now know it was in Europe in the fall, maybe even in the spring of, of 19, maybe, who knows, it might have even been in, in, the, in, the, in the virus pool from the beginning of time. We really don't know. But we do know that it, that it that it was in Italy before it was announced in China, and it appears to have been in Spain in, in the spring. So, but 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 they they needed to say it's new, it's novo, it's new. Remember, remember how remember? novel, yeah, novel, novel right? Now, I'm going to go back to the phrase naturally occurring emerging disease. All right, so you can't do so if, if there's a flu. You can't do an emergency use authorization and, and, and cook up a, uh, a vaccine in your bathtub and, and, and start administering it to people. You just can't do it because it's the flu. But if you can call it an emerging disease, and if you can say that it's a biological threat, uh, thanks to the legalistic definitions, you can use an MCM, which is a medical countermeasure. Okay. So that is now. I ask you, this this topic of the, the quote vaccine is the biggest topic on the planet Earth today. Where have you heard anybody spell out what I just spelled out to you? Oh, I know. I don't tell you any of that stuff. Okay. Yeah. And, now, and now here's the thing: it's all on the CDC website, and and, I'm, and you don't even have to dig, and you don't even have to be a PhD in in uh, immunology and vaccinology. <laughs> They even put it in, but, but here's the thing. They, they here, so you ask, why did, why did they give this stuff away? It's like Madoff. It's, okay, let's go back to Bernie Madoff. There were guys in the financial industry that knew Bernie Madoff was a scam artist. And the reason they knew it was they looked at his annual report and they looked at the numbers and they knew they were impossible. Not because they were good, but because they were so consistent. Right. Nobody has consistent numbers like that. So, and they couldn't find a means, a mechanism by which he was generating these numbers. It just seemed like the money went in and somehow he did magic and the money came out and it was fantastic. Well, he was made chairman of NASDAQ. I don't know if people remember that or even know that. This is not like a guy that was operating out of a, out of a shoebox, you know, in a, in a, you know, this was, this was a guy that was absolutely 1000% mainstreamed. And if you dared say anything negative about him, you were considered a crank, right? So you and, and so you so you might say, well, how? Wait a minute. How how do they get away with this? They know that once the uh, the the meme <laughs> is set, that they're the genius, and this is this is the right way. Um, nobody, and that includes the news media, especially the news media. It includes our medical profession. 
it includes our local politicians who are beyond useless, they're not going to read the fine print. And if they read the fine print, they're going to go, oh, gee, this, you know, and it, and it becomes a silver or lead issue. If I stand up and say something, I'm out. I'm done. My career's over. If I shut up, I get to keep my job. So that's how, if so now if you're asking, how did all these local politicians get corrupted? It's not necessarily they were given money. Um, they were just shown that this is the, the consensus. Now, where the money came in, and I, I'm, I'm, let me see if I can find it. The CDC, um, which is not Fauci's thing, but they're, they're closely associated, was on its way to oblivion uh, in the 1950s. Because the reality is, um, infectious diseases are really not that big a deal. If you control, if, if people are well nourished and they have decent sanitation and they're not being, you know, you know, radically environmentally poisoned, um, you're not going to have outbreaks of stuff. Just, just doesn't happen, you know, just doesn't happen. And a lot of the energy and impetus behind dealing with, with, with infectious disease was the fact that people did live you know, you, you had malaria, and you, I mean, you still have malaria, and you, you do have certain infectious things that are, you know, insect-driven. But a lot of the things that people die, like I'm from a family, I have one branch in my family, my grand, is that my grandfather's side? Half the kids died. Like, they just died, you know, because they were living in slums in New York, and they, you know, my, 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 grand, my, great, my great aunt, who's my, my grandfather's sister on the Italian side, just so, so everybody can visualize how people in urban centers used to live. They, and I mean, we might have talked about this. I can't remember. They lived in a, in a five story walk up, four apartments per floor. And in those days, who knows how many people per apartment, you know, big families, jam, you know, so hundred, at least, well, let's see, for, for, for 20, at least a hundred. Yeah. Hundreds of people in this building, at least a hundred people in this building. They had one water source. For the entire building, it was a pipe in the backyard. So when you wanted water, you went out with buckets, you filled the buckets, and you brought it into your, you know, to cook or to bathe or whatever. There were no toilets. The toilets were chamber pots. And when the guy came by with the cart and the horse and everything, you know, you dumped your chamber pot. That, and, and when you wanted a, when you wanted a good bath, you went to the public bathhouse. So, so infectious diseases were a big, you could see why infectious diseases were a big problem. And people were malnourished and they were overworked and they were working in these horrific industrial settings. They were working seven days a week and 12 hours a day. I mean, it was just, it was a nightmare. So, so now, now fast forward to the forties. Well, we got a 40 hour work week. Everybody's got indoor plumbing. You know, we're eating pretty well. You know, we're all out in the suburbs. You know, we're just not having these kind of problems anymore. So the CDC was on its way out. So here's the key. A very bright CDC guy, a politician, a man that understood the levers of power and believe, and knew that survival was everything, realized that if you could link public health to defense, you could preserve the CDC. Because, and, and if you could, pa- if you could package the CDC as one of the frontline defenders of America, suddenly this thing, which was on its way to oblivion, um, would now have a reason to be and a source of funding and so on. Now they did one other piece, and this this will finally bring us full circle, and you'll and you'll and we'll start to under, really understand why this COVID thing worked so well for the bad guys. 
this is a sideline for me. I'm not, I'm not a full-time reporter. I'm not, I'm not writing a book on this. I'm, I'm always wishing this thing's going to come to an end so I can stop spending my time on this, you know. But you so, spend a lot of time learning about it and living well, I, and, and it's, it's, experiences together. It, it's the issue of the day, you know, and just like I dove into the Internet when the Internet was new and I, and I left no stone unturned, and the internet was the internet was the big issue of the '90s. That was probably the biggest long-term force that we had. And I just, you know, I just dug into it. And I and I had a bad, like I like I was saying, I, I already had a real interest in in uh, media, and I had an interest in the history of media and the development of media and 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 all the the neuroscience of of um, of attention and memory formation. And, um, you know, I just had, I had, I had this body of knowledge that, I, that, that I crystal, was able to crystallize around looking at the internet, right? So here we are in this other realm of this huge story that's clearly going to define the next 10 years, if not 20, if not 100, if, we, if we're not careful. So it's, it's got my attention and I happen to have a lot of the tools to analyze it. And luckily I have, I have the time. It, it, its nickname is the medical CIA. And I don't, I don't have, let me see if I can. Anyway, so what they did, the CDC formed this organization that would take the best and the brightest, the best and the brightest of, uh, of, uh, American medicine and American science and train them in the CDC's view of the world. Okay. It's called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Okay. The Epidemic Intelligence Service, the EIS. Okay, okay. it's a two-year um, postdoctoral program, funded. You're paid like a rock star. <laughs> You're fed caviar, I'm sure. And what do you learn? Okay, let me read it. Let me read what the EIS is. It's a long-standing, globally recognized fellowship, renowned for its investigative and emergency response efforts. Learn about the disease detectives and alumni who make up this program's distinguished network. Okay, so I'm going to get back to that in a second. Their network. This is the key. This is the key to the whole puzzle. How this happened, how they were able to take over the world's mind so fast. Yes, they had the media. Yes, they could get the doctors and the, and the sleazeball politicians in line. But how did they get the public health officials who control, who, who were the advisors to the governors, how did they get that done so fast? Okay. Now, right on their homepage is the following. Media and publications. And EIS officers work on the front lines of public health. Their service and publications may, it may attract the attention of news media and public health partners. Underline that in your mind, public health partners. Read about offers investigations, findings, and insights for public health through news coverage, publications, authors to authored to inform public health action and inspired by the e and inspired entertainment inspired by the EIS network. Okay, so on their front page, they are already talking about the exist. You know, they're talking about it, not a conspiracy theory, not Alex Jones, right? right this is their right, own right freaking website on the homepage of this organization, which they created and they named the Epidemic Intelligence Service. They are talking immediately about influencing the press. Okay. So, and not only the press, but public health partners. Who are these public health partners? These are 
the public health officer of the state of New York, the public health officer of the city of New it's, it's a club. It's a profession. They all know each other. I'm sure every year they gather once or twice in some glamorous spot to, to get drunk and go to, go to, you know, uh, meetings and conference seminars and so on. They all know each other. And when they need a job, they're all, you know, hey, they're all networking. So this is a, this is a little, a little club of people. And who is working on these people day in and day out, day, day in and day night and, and day in and day out? The epidemic intelligence service run by the CDC. They're constantly producing news articles, publications. They're influencing news coverage. They are, um, also inspiring entertainment. How many movies? Have we seen, yeah, right? How many movies have we seen in the last 10 years about these disease fighters, you know, solving this disastrous um, epidemic of, of whatever? Yeah, so, Hollywood is a big topic on the mouthpiece for a lot yeah. of different issues. And I don't know how many people are aware, but, but you know, the Pentagon has a whole department. Again, guys who show up on Monday with their donuts and it's 9 o'clock and they got the coffee and the phone. And their job is to liaison with Hollywood, to read scripts to provide um, uh, free technical advice and also to provide guidance. Like, we don't really like the representation that you have in this scene. Why don't you moderate it a little bit? And if you do, you know that scene where you need five, you know, phantom whatever jets to fly through the sky and, you know, we'll lend them to you. How's that? Done. Okay, so have you, I mean, it's been a long time since a movie's been made that showed the military in anything other than a glowing light. That is not an, uh, an accident. That is not an accident. So, um, yeah, promotion, recruitment so, tools. Yeah. So with all these forces, how do these, how do terrible things end? You know, how do, I mean, considering that COVID's on the scale of, I mean, it's not on the scale of Nazi Germany, but it's on a big, big scale worldwide. Well, you know, we, we, stop it? you know, we, you know, we say it's not on the scale of Nazi Germany. It's just a different form, but it's, but it's a similar size. And, um, I don't know if I've had a couple of interviews and I don't know if we, you and I talk about this, but, but one of the many corruptions of that the Nazi regime, uh, was involved in was the corruption of medicine. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's traditional going back to the middle ages, probably even earlier that, Tremendous number of people from of Jewish ancestry involved in medicine. It's it's a historic thing. It goes back to the beginning of time, and that was true in Germany. You had a lot of Jewish doctors. So, what do you think happened to those Jewish doctors during the Nazi regime? If they were the heads of hospitals, or the heads of this, or the head of that, or the head of academic departments, eh, you know, maybe they were fired. And not maybe they were. Uh, and who were they replaced by? There's a book uh, by a guy named Lifton, who's an MD, who, who made his life's work studying this. Big, thick book called The Nazi Doctors, very well documented. And there were, by the way, there were court cases. That, you know, the Nure we always hear about the Nuremberg trials. Well, part of the Nuremberg trials involved um, trials, uh, prosecutions of doctors. Hmm. And, and so there was quite a bit of evidence, formal evidence presented. And there was enough evidence that some of those doctors were hung. Uh, others were imprisoned for extended periods of time. 
and and remember, you know, we're only seeing that was based on the cases. You know, we know we know how the world works. Not everything makes it to trial. You know, uh, not all the evidence is gathered. Right. So, but of of the evidence that was actually preserved and presented at trial and prosecuted, it was serious enough for the ultimate penalty for some of these guys. So it it turns out that the profession in Germany that had the highest percentage of of card-carrying Nazi party members. Now, remember, not every German person was a Nazi, and not every German person was a member of the Nazi party. Uh, But there were people, obviously, clearly civilians, who were enthusiastic members of the Nazi party. Um, Well, the profession in Germany that had the highest percentage of card-carrying members of the Nazi party was the medical profession. And this is statistically factual, and Lifton documents it in his book, and so on. And they were rewarded with what you can reward doctors with, head of department at a university, head of a hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, There were, uh, as you know, many, a lot of enslaved people uh, working uh, for the Nazi war machine, basically, you know, making everything, uniforms and munitions and cement, um, you know, whatever, whatever industrial thing needed to be made for the war effort, they had slave labor doing it. They wanted these people to be productive now. And like all human beings, sometimes they got sick and sometimes they had, they had outbreaks given the terrible conditions of typhus and things like that. So all of these camps had hospitals, all these work camps, well, the, the slave labor camps, they all had hospitals, not out of humanitarian, but it's like, you know, can we patch this guy back up and put him back on the line, you know, or can we get a, get our handle on this typhus outbreak so we don't lose the whole line? That's why they had the hospitals, right? You know, doc, you know, so sometimes somebody would come in, this is all in Lifton's book, and he was too sick to go back to work. So what do you do? Put him in a nice hospital bed and feed him? No, you kill him. And a lot of people were killed medically, which you never hear about. You always hear about this, the ovens and the gas chambers. There there were doctors, (laughs) you know, uh, sinister, sinister beyond belief. There were doctors whose job was to administer a final shot to somebody and then falsify the death certificate because, you know, perversely (laughs) – Again, it sounds familiar to this year for you. Exactly. Perversely, the Nazis were actually law-abiding. They had laws, and they followed them. And it was actually, believe it or not, it was against the law for a doctor to murder a patient. (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing out of, you know. So what they did, you couldn't say, you know, um, Mr. Jones came in. he, he, He was really too sick to go back to work. So we decided... It's, you know, it's a very easy way to kill somebody. They would treat them to death, essentially. Well, one know. shot. One shot and he's gone, you know. And, you know, it's, I don't want to get into the, you know, it's logistically challenging to kill lots of people. So any any easy way you can find, you take. However, it was against the law to do that. So what they did was they just changed the death certificate. And that was one of the crimes. Crime. I'm going to underline that. I want to put it in all caps, and I want to bold it. It was a crime prosecuted in the Nuremberg trials to falsify the cause of death. Okay? Now, let's fast forward to the present. We have Mr. Jones, 82 years old, diabetes, stage 4 cancer, 
heart disease. Um, he has some kind of respiratory distress and has a heart attack and dies. And we say he died of COVID. Okay. So we're not far, uh, from, from the Nazis. We're just, you know, it, we, we just don't have people goose stepping around, you know, on Broadway, uh, with, with, uh, you know, Nazi armbands. Right. We don't have that. But, <laughs> but in terms of, of, of absolute corruption of our medical system, functionally, you know, I mean, it just, if, 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 you know, and, and I have an interview on the site with a nurse, a vet. She, she was over in Iraq and, you know, with the special forces and, you know, operated field hospitals there and, you know, came back and, 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 um, trained up back over here and then became a, you know, formal nurse and worked in Florida hospitals. And then they closed her hospital because there wasn't enough, you know, they had the COVID scare and there wasn't enough business and nobody was coming in. So she went uh, as a contractor to New York City. By the way, what do you think, what do you think those contractors were paid that went to the New York City hospitals in April? Just I don't know. Yeah, maybe a lot. <laughs> give a guess. Just give, just give a guess. Just, I, just for fun. I don't know. 5,000 a week. Try $10,000 a week. And they were paid by FEMA. Mm. Okay. And, um, she arrived and I think she said it was like seven days before they even deployed her. She couldn't believe it. And she said there were other people that had already been there three, you know, some kind, some crazy amount of time that hadn't ever, they were getting $10,000 a week and they hadn't even left the hotel. Sheesh. Okay. So when they finally got to the hotel, when they finally were deployed, they were put on buses and sent to city hospitals, city run hospitals. And I have the interview and, um, this someday this is going to come out. She's got good legal representation and someday it's going to come out. Um, anybody who walked in off the street with asthma, with, she had one guy, she said he had a panic attack, you know, fear, just terror. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people are, are very suggestible and they're very fearful and, you know, they hear something in the news and they absolutely believe it. And then there's such a thing as a psychosomatic response. And, you know, I don't want to under, I don't, you know, I try to moderate my aggravation with people buying this bullshit. And the way I do that is I just realize, well, gee, what if I was in a box and the only information I was getting was, was the terror? Maybe I would probably go with it too. But anyway, she said people were coming in with those kind of problems and they were being intubated. In other words, they were, you know, it's, people, people look up at, I don't know if we talk about this, but people you did last time you said they put on paralytics and yeah, it's, I was like, well, how can they call out for help or tell you what's going on? And you can't. No, you so, can't. You, you're, when you're, when you're, when they talk about vents, you know, this is not just putting a little oxygen mask on somebody's face. When they talk about mechanical ventilation, venting somebody and intubate, intubating, they're talking about knocking that person out cold. And jamming a, a pipe all the way down into their lungs, basically. And to do that, you need to, you need to knock them out. You need to paralyze them. You need to give them para, uh, paralytic drugs. And you need to give them powerful and, and powerful analgesic drugs, like not aspirin. We're talking about what's that stuff that kills people that they mix with heroin now? Well, like fentanyl. Yeah, fentanyl. That's one of the things these people are getting. And you get, it's not like you take a pill and, you know, no, no. No, or they give you a shot and you go out. You're on IVs. So you have to imagine the guy's in bed. He's got a pipe down his throat. He's got uh, an array of IVs, paralytics, analgesics, um, all these things, 24-7. And I asked her, how do, I said, this is a dumb question. How do they eat? They don't. 
they're 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 fed by tube. I go, how do they drink? Well, they don't. We fig, you know, it's figured that the liquid in the IV is sufficient hydration. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Uh, how do they relieve themselves? Well, they have to be cleaned up on a regular basis. And and then we're talking about people in this state for weeks and months. Okay. We're also talking about you need a Cracker Jack respiratory technician monitoring that person, right? Like this is not something you just sort of put somebody in and then you just you know you go and you knit or you watch TV and, you know, check on them every now and then. And what she said was they had all the vents in the world in this hospital and they put – she said there was always somebody on a vent and as soon as somebody died, they cleaned it off and they put another person on it right away, okay? So they had all the vents in the world. She said they had almost no nurses with ICU experience, and they had, you know, I think she said one respiratory technician per shift. Which yeah, said, you're going to be overwhelmed, right? Exactly, yeah. you can't take care of people. If you wanted to kill, now I don't know, I don't know what their intention was. It might have just been psychotic, bureaucratic ineptitude. But if you wanted to kill a lot of people legally and and get away, and and, and, and don't forget, Cuomo gave a blanket immunity to all hospitals uh, for a certain period, two-month period when, when all this was going on, for everything, not just not just accidents, but malpractice, outright abuse, anything that went down in a medical – in any medical facility in the state of New York during a certain – I think it was a two-month period, uh, total immunity to any sort of uh, legal oversight or, or prosecution. Uh, now you might say, how the hell, you know, how on earth could that happen? That's so corrupt. Well, you know, you have residents who are running the floors. They are just out of medical school. They don't know shit about anything. This is their first medical experience in their life. And then you have, um, I forget what you call it, attending physicians or supervise, whatever, who are supposedly supposed to supervise these guys. Some of them did. Some of them, she said, were MIA. They never even showed up. Right. All right. Now, now you have now, so who runs the hospitals really? Well, the hospitals are really run by hospital administrators. Now, I asked her this, and she didn't know the answer, and maybe somebody will know the answer. If you're a doctor, you have to take a, an oath. If you're a nurse, you have to take an oath to protect your patients. Does a hospital administrator have to take an oath? I'm going to guess a hospital administrator doesn't take an oath. I don't need the oath holds them back anyway. You know? Yeah, and and. and I think pretty much a hospital administrator is interested in the bottom line. And if the bottom line is we get so many tens of thousands of dollars per intubated patient on top of what we're able to charge for all these drugs. Cause I mean, imagine what a day on event must cost the uh, Medicare or Medicaid. I mean, the sky must be the limit, yeah, right? They, I'm sure they allocate 24 seven supervision, even if they give like two minutes of supervision and they can bill all that to. Yeah, wherever they need to build it to. And they have, and every IV and they get to mark, you know, that gets marked up and, and now the, and then the farmer reps are really happy and, you know, keeping the farmer reps is, is happy is somehow important to hospital administrators. Uh, I haven't quite figured that out why there's a really interesting movie, a documentary that we might have talked about. Forgive me if I'm going over old territory, but about hypodermic needles. You know, one of the hazards of medicine is, is accidentally you know, someone's got a seizure or, or they're you know, having a bad drug experience or whatever, and you accidentally stab yourself with a needle, um, and it may be dirty or, you know, I don't know. This all, th- all kinds of things can go wrong. And then you have the third world 
where people reuse needles because they're so poor. You know, they put them in Clorox or they boil them or whatever. Well, there's a one kind, there's a one use needle that exists that, you know, it's one use. You use it once and you can't use it again. And that just eliminates that problem. These guys tried to sell and they, you know, they were all, they were serious business people. They were all ready to manufacture it and produce it. And not a, the hot, not only would the hospital administrators not accept this as an alternative or as a supplement or as an experiment. They wouldn't even talk with them. Well, I'll tell you experience I had. A friend of mine knows somebody. Actually, I'll tell you two experiences from the same guy. Number okay. one, so number one, he he. I, I used to have a, a really bad chronic back problem. And uh, he said, you should get a standing MRI. I said, I never heard of that. He goes, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty un, unknown. Mm. Um, but uh, the guys that invented it, he said, he said, basically, you know, you do an MRI, you're lying down. Well, Maybe, maybe the, the, it, the problem doesn't show when you're lying down. It shows when you're sitting or when you're standing, you know, which is, which was my case. And wouldn't it be better to have an MRI that you could take standing up? So he knew the guys that invented this. And, uh, he said when they went to hospitals, they were told we're not interested at all because there's two co- companies, Siemens and another one that own the, the MRI business and they just didn't want the competition. Period. End of story. And somehow the hospital administrators, I don't know, this is probably maybe the most sinister profession in America that we don't know about. <laughs> somehow they're, I'm sure they are so well oiled and fueled by, by pharma and the medical instruments industry that we can't even fathom how, how well bribed they are. Cause they, they're the real, you know, yeah, yeah, they're, they're kind of like the, the spigot or they're, they're kind of the connecting pipe between pharma and hospital. So, what amount of money and influence would pharma spend to make sure that that profession does their bidding? I'm sure the, I'm sure if you're a hospital administrator. Well, I'm sure they pick the medical equipment and some of it could be faulty or not. They pick the drugs, generic or prescription. And, you know, from what I've read and talked to people, generic drugs are incredibly problematic. I mean, yeah, the procedures used, the doctors they get to operate on people versus not. I mean, everything. Yeah, so this is a very powerful. So the other story he told me, he knows a guy who has a consulting profession, a consulting business, that he provides sort of high-level medical advice to like 300 of the Fortune 500 companies. And um, this guy told him, point blank, if I have this COVID thing, I'm getting on a, this was early on, I'm getting on a vitamin C IV, and but I, but I would never say that publicly. <laughs> so here's a guy. That makes his living advising, um, uh, uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies on medical issues, and he knows something that he's not going to go on the record for because he doesn't want his meal ticket torn, taken from him and torn up. Um, so, so when, when we when we go back to to this corruption issue, it, it's a, it's a perfect storm too when. Not it's when when everybody is has got the lead or silver choice. So if you're a hospital administrator, it's like, you know, do you ruin this gravy train you're on, or do you just, you know, buy more events and put more people on them, and you know, call everybody a COVID case and shut up any, you know, there were there were doctors very early on in New York that were saying oh, we should not be putting these people on vents, and those doctors were taken off the ICUs, and that that's, that that was way back in April. They were all removed. There was this huge flurry of activity of, of Zoom calls and a lot of them got captured on YouTube and I saved a bunch of them where these, these guys were genuinely like, Hey, this is, this doesn't look right. 
and and you can't and, you, and to to an extent you can't blame a doctor. You take you know you you tell the you know he doesn't know, and and you take him and you throw him in the ICU and you say people are coming in with this disease and you gotta vent him, and he's like okay. I mean, why should he have to double check everything that's told him by his superiors? You sh- he should be able to have faith, right? But what happened was they started doing it and they started realizing, whoa, ah, this. I don't, I think we're, I think this is the wrong way to go. And so you can, you see these, these Zoom calls where, where these young doctors were like going, I don't know, man. I, uh, and, and, uh, those guys disappeared and, and they, and, you know, at least one of them I know was just removed from the ICU and who knows what happened to his career. And then of course, you know, the blackballing, this is a kind of a sidebar, but it's very interesting. There was this crazy idea <clears throat> that Edward Teller, uh, came up with. You know, they were trying to find peaceful uses for the atom bomb in the 50s. So he said, hey, why don't we use the atom bomb to build canals in, in, in uh, Alaska? Um, we'll just drop like 40 of them <laughs> on, uh, on, on Alaska and build a port and build a canal system, and it will be great, you know. And these two ar- Arctic ecologists went on, on, put their careers on the line and said, uh, I don't think it's a good idea, you know. <laughs> I don't think you should drop atom bombs on Alaska. Both those guys were blackballed for life out of academia. Um, I think one ended up, it's all documented in a book called The Firecracker Boys. And I, I think one ended up in, 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 uh, uh, in Canada. He was given a, and he, and he became the most esteemed, ar, you know, ar, Arctic ar, ecologist of, of his generation. It wasn't like these were lightweight guys. Yeah, but, but, but by virtue, yeah, by, by virtue of the fact that they went on the, on, uh, on the record and said this was a bad idea, they were blackballed in all of the American academia. See, these, these networks, you know, we're, we're, they're not visible to us. Like we kind of imagine that everything's being run rationally and everything's being run on a sort of a fair basis. It doesn't occur to us that all the college, you know, college presidents are pretty much part of the same club mm. and, 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 you know, maybe they're not malicious, but if they're told don't hire this guy, yeah, they're not going to look into it. They're just not going to hire him. So is corruption the default mode of humanity or just large institutions? Large institutions. I, I, I see there's this myth. See, I, they, interesting, the news media and, 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 and political pundits, um, uh, like to focus on the misdeeds of individuals. And God knows some individuals do, some really heinous stuff, you know. So, so, but that, but that's not the norm, you know. I think the norm. I think you know, if you look at chil- like little children, even young, as soon as they can walk, you know, they're they they like to cooperate. <laughs> they like to to help. All right, all right, they get distracted, and they run off and do. But 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 they have this built-in impulse to participate and 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 help and be productive and and you know. They want to help. They want to do good things, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the, that's the real default of, of, of human beings in, in individually and in small groups. There's always exceptions. There are people that are just whacked and you know, they're hopeless, but, but, you know, and every, and we all have our foibles and, you know, we, you know, but, but in general, human beings are, are decent. But you no, know, I think once you get these concentrations of power where, where money's involved, um, where that that are big enough to be worth bribing, I guess. I guess the issue is when it gets to be big enough for professional uh, for, for professional bribers to get involved. That's mm-hmm. when the game is lost, right? So you know the Pentagon hopeless, right? The 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 uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, if you're a general and you approve all kinds of bullshit um, weapon systems, you know, when you retire, you're getting a job with with Grumman or or you know Lockheed Martin. You know, it's 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 a, it's a lock, and you're going to get paid lavishly. It, you know, we had we had the CDC, the head of the C. You know, this is people. And, you know, I you know this is another area. I ha, I have been studying corruption in the medical industry for a long time because I'm very interested in all the vaccine injuries that have occurred in the last 20 years that have been whitewashed. But the lady who forced the um, Gardasil um, mm. vaccination on young girls, which is which is the most sinister bullshit ever. Um, the idea that that the um, the human papillomavirus causes cervical cancer is absolute bullshit. And, and the idea that you're going to prevent cervical cancer by giving 12 year old girls, uh, Gardas vaccination, uh, against it is just, it's just, it's sick. And it's injured a lot of girls. And now they're trying right. to, and now they're trying to give it to boys. I mean, it's just so evil. So this woman who ran to give it to babies. Oh my God. Oh my God. I didn't even know that. Um, Anyway, this the woman that rammed that through, literally, the day she left the CDC, head of CDC, she moved into a $7 million job at Merck, which is the maker of Gardasil, plus stock options and all this other stuff. And as if that's not bad enough, she's lorded as an example of what a woman can accomplish in this world, like someone you should – someone that young girls should look up to. So, yeah, there's a lot of – it's not it's not a lot of them, a lot of people – but it's it's it, 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 at the high levels you're going to find um, th- these kinds of people, and they're there for a reason. They're there because they have that sort of lust for power, and and they're they're you know all about themselves. And mm-hmm. the end, they serve the purposes of the professional bribers, which would include pharma, would include the the, uh, the defense industry. So what what do you you know with all the history you've studied? Have you come up with any good ways to fight? <laughs> you know, there's horrible corruption. Like, well, you know. you know, this is step one. I think this is an education. You know, people aren't if people aren't educated if they don't know anything about this. And I mean, the amount of work I've had to put in to put all these pieces together. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not trivial, you know. So so educate. It's everything starts as education. So we're doing this call. Um, that maybe one more person. <laughs> Then, then knew this yesterday. Will now know it, you know. So I mean, I, and I, you know, I, 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 it's like it was like when the internet. There were literally the number of people that believe the internet could have been commercialized. I, I, you could have fit around a card table at one point. There, there hmm. really, there really weren't that many people. That in fact, in '93, I went to the top online media conference in the world. This was when CompuServe ruled the roost, and they had a panel on. Can the internet be commercialized? Not when, not how, but is it even possible? And half the panelists said no, and the other half of the panelists said, I think so, but I don't know how. So, so it all starts with education. You know, we, we have a problem in that uh, our media is absolutely corrupt. Our tech media, the tech companies that have taken control of the alternative media, <clears throat> which Facebook and Twitter, and YouTube, they used to be alternative media channels. Uh, tw- Facebook, right. Facebook and Twitter. I mean, not Facebook. YouTube and Twitter still are, but but you know they ban stuff. Like yesterday, a friend posted something from the European Journal of Medicine, just just like a you know totally plain vanilla you know medical journal that asked a question about COVID. Just you know, it was a scientific paper, and it was 
formed as a question. Twitter, if you clicked on it, said dangerous link. All right, so that's that. And then we had Amazon. Um, I was helping a, a woman who, who wrote a book on, on her successful, extensive successful record in, in reversing certain cases of autism. And uh, Amazon took her book off Amazon. Um, and they took the books of anybody that talked about the substance that she uses off Amazon. This is including medical doctors and PhDs in biochemistry. So, you know, fairly serious books removed from Amazon. So, and then, of course, Facebook is doing what they're doing. And then Google, you know, two years ago, Google completely changed. And this is, this is a problem. Um, you know, Google is in the pharmaceutical business now. Uh, Amazon wants to be delivering uh, meds to people. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure little Mark Zuckerberg wants his finger in that pie too somehow. Um, I don't know if Twitter has an idea for that, but, um, they all, but, but Amazon and, Amazon and, um, uh, Google are in the pharmaceutical business. They're in it. Like, uh, Google has its own line of vitamins. You know, they, they like to see what works and then make their own brand and then eliminate and then use the data that they've stolen. <laughs> from their customers to design their marketing. I mean, it's just so unbelievably sinister. Of course, you know, Jeff Bezos owns um, the Washington Post, so everything. Yeah, I don't ever say anything bad about him. Yeah. But have you, have you, it'll be interesting, I'm not tasking you certainly, but a thing to look back would be look back in history and look how these um, these terrible things were put to an end or how they ended. Did they truly end and Maybe there would be insight there on how to put an end to this, put a stop to this. You know, well, you know, here's, I mean, I hate to be, you know, I don't, I, I'm, 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 I'm functionally optimistic, you know, I'm functionally optimistic. However, I'm also, um, I, I try to be as realistic as I can. We have not succeeded in reversing the AIDS fraud. And, and again, if people, you gotta go to, gotta go to the brass check website and search because it's blocked from all the search engines, but. It's um, Fauci's first fraud, HIV equals AIDS. That's a blatant fraud that is responsible for the theft of, as I mentioned earlier, over half a trillion dollars in research money alone, not to mention the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people that were given ACT. I mean, that was a total catastrophe, and that thing is ongoing. There's not even a dent in that thing. If we look at cancer, Cancer almost certainly is a is a combination of nutritional deficiency and environmental um, uh, poisoning, you know, including the crap that's in processed food. At least a lot of cases are are resulting in that. Uh, so what do we have? We have an industry that that gives people um, you know chemotherapy and 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 uh, radiation that that beats their immune system to a pulp. Um, the theory being if we kill a lot of stuff hopefully we won't kill the patient and he'll recover i mean that's really the that's basically their theory um so that no one's put a dent in that these medical things are really apparently just based on observation really really hard diabetes uh uh adult onset diabetes that really seems to be a, a nutritional issue it seems to be a function of uh this sort of uh, industrial diet um, yeah, but diabetes is no big deal. It only affects like you know a billion people worldwide. So oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, it, and it's their know, fault too for eating and, badly. Well, with, so I mean, wherever the diet changes from from traditional to industrial crap, the diabetes rates explodes. 
you know, it's just, you know, maybe more science needs to be done. And yet people reverse it all the time. You know, like, like for instance, something really, uh, you know, I mean, just, this is important stuff. You know, there's, there was a thing called margarine. I mean, and the other, the other, the other area of corruption that we've made no dent in at all, especially in the United States, is the adulterated food supply. Like, the adulteration of food is a crime, right? And there are a lot of substances that are in processed American foods that if you put them in, in, a, in food in, in, even in China, <laughs> you know, but certainly in Europe and Canada and Australia and places like that, you would go to jail. And it's legal. It's mainstream in the United States to put those things in food. Like, for instance, um, you know, this is really interesting uh, in this in money power. Procter & Gamble, you know, made a lot of its money from margarine, you know. And what is margarine? Margarine is cottonseed oil. And if you, if you read the history of cottonseed oil, cottonseed oil, cottonseed was considered a toxic substance. Nobody ate it. And then there were some shady livestock you know, operators that would feed their livestock um, cottonseed. And that was considered like a really low class thing to do. And then, and then some diabolical guy figured out that you could make something that kind of act, looked like butter and spread like butter. And, and if you dyed it, because it would be gray otherwise, if you dyed it yellow, it would kind of look like butter. And you could make it out of garbage, literally garbage. Cotton, gar- cottonseed was garbage. It was something you threw away. And, um, if you could somehow package it as as an as a healthy, it was packaged as a healthy alternative to butter, and people for decades were consuming this stuff by the tub, and uh, they knew it was they knew it was poison, you know. So, so we haven't come, you know. I, I don't I don't think margarine, but I think it's still for sale. I think you can still buy it in the stores. I think there are people that still eat it. And, yeah, it's still around. Yeah. yeah, and and I bet and I bet there are food makers that that uh, you know use it in their in their products. So you think at best this will simmer down to a low boil, but it'll be with um, us I, forever. I tell you, I'll tell you what my fear is. Um, or do you feel like the powers that be are like, wow, it's finally working as well as we want. Let's keep pushing. Yeah, well, for sure, and for sure, and and they're going to keep pushing. And and you know, you you talked earlier about you know how is it that they tell us what they're going to do in advance. Well, Gates, you know, we all have video. We all have seen the video of him in March of t- 2020 saying he wants a, uh, uh, well, universal vaccination and he wants mm-hmm. digital, uh, vaccination, uh, record ID. And they're already, I mean, that's, you know, LA's doing it. Um, it's voluntary. It's, it's a, it's a service to their citizens. Uh, you sure. can, using your Apple wallet, see Apple's involved. Using your Apple Wallet, you can have a uh, digital verification that you've received the, uh, the vaccination, and there. And you know, so who's going to go along with this? Well, airlines, because they're terrified. They're they're like they're one foot in the grave financially. Mm-hmm. Are they going to stand up and say we're not going to go with this? The government says, hey, you're only getting the money if you go with this. They're going to go with it. So airlines are going to do it. Hotels, they're in the same boat as the airlines. Um, cause now we all have these, you know, I don't have a smartphone, never had a smartphone, never wanted one, never, well, I, I, I don't know. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't think they can. I knew I saw, I, I, I it's, it's too good. You know, it's like, I'll get, you know, I'll do my computing on a desktop at home. And when I'm away from home, I don't need to be tracked. And if, and if I really need to find something, I'll ask somebody or I'll get a map you know, or I'll, or I'll wait till I get home and I'll look it up on the internet, you know? Um, but now we have everybody with a smartphone. So, uh, 
But that'll be interesting. Can they compel us to carry to get a smartphone? Well, they're already trying to compel people to get the vaccine. You know, talking about uh, you know the yeah you know, the airlines. Uh, Ticketmaster mentioned it. I mean, there's various pundits that are saying it's a good idea. So, but there's also oh, yeah. pushback. You know. Oh, well, you know what 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 well. Here's the thing. You know, I, I watched in amazement as the airlines bought the 9/11 uh, bullshit. Uh, now, whether whether you believe the official story or not, the response was insane um, and continues to be insane and uh, at the airports. And, uh, you know, if they really cared about bombs, they would have trained a generation of bomb-sniffing dogs. There is nothing better for detecting uh, explosives than a trained bomb-sniffing dog. They, they're, you can't fool them, and they, and, and they, they find everything. Um, those those stupid screening boxes that people walk through—they're jokes. They're absolute jokes. They're expensive jokes, and they made um, who that guy? I forget it. He, he was head of uh, Homeland Security for a while. Um, he personally made a fortune on those. Um, but it, they don't really care. They didn't really care about security, and, and they were annoying their customers. They were making flying an absolute miserable experience. You think, and a lot of people, and, and airline travel diminished, and you would think people in the airline industry would have stood up and said, Hey, you're hurting our business. Why don't we have some real security here? But they never did. So I, I, my fear is that um, if the government tells them your billion dollar bailout is dependent on you screening your, your patients, your, 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 well, they turn the whole, that's the thing. They've turned the entire world into, into a patient, which is right. Everyone. Yeah. If we, if we pull this back all the way, what is the goal of a corrupt doctor? The goal of a corrupt doctor is to convince a rich person that they have a fatal disease that only that doctor can cure, of course, at great expense. That's the goal of, of a corrupt doctor. So what's the, what's the goal of a corrupt medical system? It's to convince the world that everybody's either sick or potentially sick or a carrier of disease, and the only the only solution is, is what, we, what we do. That, so so this, is, this is corrupt medicine played out to its um, fullest uh, possible expression. So I see the hotel, I see the, I see the airports going with it. I see the um, hotels going with it. I mean, I'm already mentally adjusting to the idea. I may never get on a plane again. I'm, I'm already mentally adjusting to the idea that I may never stay. I mean, this is terrible, but I may never stay in a hotel again. Now, Ticketmaster, very easy to make the word go down from the, feds to the governor to the mayor of los angeles that piece of insane crap um that you know he, he can shut down the the, the rock show he, mm -hmm. he can tell you no you're not going to have the kiss 40th year reunion you, no, know? No. you know yeah unless you put yeah, up it's like all the laws in the world are just i mean now they've all split into double standards you know you can go out and riot for one reason but you can't you know, be in church. I, I, I was in a restaurant today. I don't know, a hundred something people there without masks. The staff yeah. has masks. Which Why magically is that okay? Instead of, uh, you know, instead of like a, a, a hair salon or a gym, it's ridiculous. What state are you in? I'm in Texas. You're in Texas. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, and here's a question. The churches, what, what the hell? Really? You, you, that you don't stand up for your parishioners? You mm -hmm. don't stand up for, I mean, you know, but you know what? I, I, I'm trying to remember. There was a program, a government program. First of all, a lot of churches got financial bailouts. 
uh, a lot of, especially the big, the big mega churches, um, were treated like employers because I guess they are employers and they got all the loans and the, whatever the PPP, whatever the money was that was flying around. There's one guy, or, Oracle, Orstein, Orstein, Joel Orstein or something. Oh, Joel Osteen. Oh, Osteen. Oh, yeah, he, he, Osteen. He, he got, a huge church. I, he got seven million or something. So, um, you know, they all got some money and probably somebody sat down and explained to him, this is for the good of society and blah, blah, blah. And he thought, well, $7 million, good of society, good enough for me. But yeah, that's insane. You can't go to church. You can't sit quietly and, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. So, so what, so where do I see this going? Now, now here's, 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 here's the thing. So everybody's got a, everybody that wants to participate in, in these various functions, going to rock concerts, <laughs> going to, on a plane, staying in a hotel, getting on a bus, um, you know, getting on the Amtrak, uh, you're going to maybe renting a car. I don't know. I mean, you're going to have to comply. You're going to have to have a smartphone. You're going to have to have a thing that shows that you, you're fully vaccinated. Now, here's the thing. Once they've done that, they have accomplished permanent lockdown because, okay, yeah, you're not in your locked in your house and you can travel around. But what if they, dis- what if they declare a new pandemic, and, and we already know they declare these pandemics in absence of scientific uh, or medical reason. They just they're already it. saying that a new one's going to come, and yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So now, now um, they can say, well, you know, you got to lock down until until the variation of this new of uh, variation of the vaccine's ready. You know, right now they have a little logistical log jam. With, you know, it is actually hard to make all this stuff and deploy it and pretend that it is, is kosher. You know, it's actually hard to fake it. Um, but they'll figure that part out. Someone's going to figure it out and, and they're going to declare, well, you know, you guys, uh, can't leave your house for the next seven days until you get, uh, the, the, the next round of vac- vaccinations and it will never end. It will never end. And every time they need money or they, f- they feel like they want to, you know, throw their weight around, there's going to be a new problem and it's just going to go on and on. So, and I, and I know this is, you know, I, and I don't, I don't know what the solution is. Now, again, I'm functionally optimistic. So I'm doing the research. We're spending time on the phone. I'm explaining, you know, the, the structure of this thing so people can see this is real. This is not, this is not a happenstance. This is not a, I mean, in a sense, it is a collection of idiots doing idiotic things, but it's also a, a structured thing that, that, that was planned, um, I think it worked, you know, like, like all, it's a coup and, and like all coups, you, you try a lot of stuff and you hope it works. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, and sometimes it works beyond your wildest imagination. There are a lot of coups that shouldn't have worked, you know, mm. like coup in Guatemala in the 1950s. Boy, if he, if the guy that was president of the country then had just made a few different choices that it might not have worked. Even, even the coup in Iran, you know, in the fifties, uh, you know, it was touch and go there. And, um, not every coup works and, uh, this, you know, but they, but sometimes they do. And, and, uh, this, this one worked. It's a coup. It's, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the, this is a coup by the, uh, you know, tech, technocrats, technocrats, big tech people, um, who are in bed with the big pharma people. Um, and the bankers seem to be totally happy to go with it. I, I know a lot of smart Wall Street people and I'm so disappointed in their, their acceptance of this. Some of them are like, God, this seems crazy, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But pretty much they're just going to trade around it. You know, they're not going to question it. Um, and it's funny, these guys that are really 
you know, not, mo and, and not everybody on Wall Street is intelligent and not everybody on Wall Street is insightful and a lot of them are idiots. They just got lucky with a couple of hands and, you know, but I know some people that are genuinely intelligent and they really are perceptive and they really dig deep. And if they're, if a, if a country, if a company is on shady, on shaky ground, they'll, they'll figure it out, you know, um, but they won't, they, they won't look at this. They're just, you know, it's the, 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 man, the mantra is on the vaccine. When the vaccine comes, then we'll get back to normal, and they're and they're basically trading around. And here's the here's the other thing. Maybe this is, you know I could talk all night. If you've got money, and you know what to do, this thing is not a problem. It's a it's a it's a payday. Mm, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not I I've, I didn't lose any money in 2020, and obviously I'm not with these people, and I don't want this to be working. But you know, I own real estate in the Hudson Valley, and I know how to trade stocks, and I have felt no pain. And if I'm not feeling pain, people with infinite more resource than I have, they're, they're, well, we know the, the, the top, was it the top 10 people in the world added $1.2 trillion to their net worth in the last year? Oh, yeah. Um, yep. They've done it phenomenally well. So, and who are they? They're Gates, Bezos, Zuckerberg, and who's censoring all the health information? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, yeah. and where, and where's our Congress? They're nowhere. Where's our news media? They're nowhere. So there are times, you know, when individuals and families and, and informal communities like people listening to the show, uh, need to put on their big boy pants and just, you know, start dealing, um, taking care of, 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 of business at home and, and, and amongst their, the, the people close to them. And, you know, thank God my brother, um, and his boys understand this is bullshit. I don't have to explain it to them, but we have family members that don't get it. And that's, oh yeah. I know plenty of people that are still scared out of their minds, which is insane. Yeah. And I don't blame them because I wrote this thing today. Maybe, maybe we'll end on this. Um, <laughs> cause otherwise it'll never end. <laughs> the story about a deadly, never before seen virus that spreads like wildfire and kills everyone in its path unless we follow the guidance of reliable authorities is indeed a terrifying story. The problem is this is not a never before seen virus. It's a coronavirus. We've seen, you know, the, the, the SARS-1 virus is, 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 is as close to this virus as a chimpanzee is to, you know, an orangutan. I mean, they're like, they're in the same family. They're not that far apart. Right. Um, uh, you know, what, what this virus is, does this virus really cause, you know, that's a whole nother issue. Does it spread like wildfire? Apparently, you know, not as bad as some things. And you know what? A lot of things spread like wildfire. All that matters is the death rate. Does it kill everyone in his path? Well, as of September 20th, 2020, the death rate among, um, people, uh, 20 to 49 was 99.98 survival rate, right? Um, in other words, that's the survival rate. So the death rate was 0.02%, you know, and that's of, that's of the cases that got to the point that required medical treatment. So the problem well, is even accurate. Yeah. I mean, yeah so the real death rate is probably, you know, nothing. So it doesn't kill everybody in its path. And then the last part of the equation of this deadly never before seen virus spreads like wildfire kills everyone in its path unless we follow the guidance of reliable authorities well we now we know who these authorities are they're bill gates they're they're tony fauci they're uh jeff bezos via his mouthpiece at the washington post um they're they're nbc news you know 
there are all these, there are all these ridiculous, you know, the Rachel Maddow, she's an authority we should be following. Anderson Cooper, are you, are you kidding? And yet that's what people are following. So if, if you accept the story that there's a deadly, never before seen virus that spreads like wildfire and kills everyone in its path, unless we follow the guide of reliable authorities, you, you if you accept that, you're going to be scared out of your mind. And fortunately, those pieces, uh, never before seen, blah, blah, blah. They're all false and, um, nobody's questioning them or they're not being questioned on a large scale. I, I, you know, Twitter is a little bit of an echo chamber. So I see a lot among my Twitter friends. Uh, they seem to get it, but I don't know what percentage of the population that is. Well, I'll say this. When I see working men, mostly contractors, guys who actually do things for a living, um, I don't see any of them worried or, or, you know, they wear a mask out of courtesy, but when we say, Hey, you don't need that mask off. It comes, you know, they, they're only wearing it because they don't want to lose business. Um, but among working people who work for a living, I don't see a lot of buying into this. So. Yeah. When I, when I go to businesses, I, I mean, I, I see a few every day that no one's wearing a mask. As soon as customers come, they put it up, you know, no one, I mean, but there's, but there are still a good amount of people that are bullies and try to say, put your mask on, you know, and they, it's amazing how they turn people against each other. It's sad. I had a, I had a, a clerk, a girl clerk, um, in, in our little neighborhood food market. I had, I, I just, I have a scarf, you know, cause it's winter and it's cold up here in the north. And, uh, so when I walk into a store, I just pull the scarf up around my mouth and nose, you know, not going to get into a big thing. She told me that's not a real mask. So luckily I'm fastening my, so, so, what is it real, so luckily, luckily I'm, I'm fastening my feet and I said, what about your mask? You know what? I don't think that's a real mask either. And you know what? I may need to call the health department and have them come in and, and examine your mask. What do you think of that? So mm. that shut her up pretty fast. Good. But, but, but not everybody's that fast on their feet and some people get intimidated and, and, and it's, it's, well, like we could go on forever uh, on this, but, but anyway. The, the network, the, understand that this network of, of propaganda and even intimidation and shaming and bullshit is, is a, out, was created over a period of decades. And it started with the CDC back in the fifties, creating this, um, epidemic, epidemic in, um, intelligence service. And, and what I, what I didn't tell you, this is really important is every year they bring in the best and the brightest. They train them for two years and then they send them out to the world. And where do they do? They become public health officers of states, counties, and cities. They become reporters, science reporters for the New York times, literally. All right. So over the last, when, when were the fifties, that's almost 70 years ago. They've had, you know, it's nearly 70 years of taking super ambitious, super articulate, super motivated people, brainwashing them and sending them out and basically filling all the public health slots, a lot of the science reporting slots, some of the medical leadership slots, so that when, when, you know, when this COVID bullshit started, they could just flip the switch and they had the whole thing wired. And then they also had, you know, there's a huge network of, of, um, uh, HIV equals AIDS, um, bullshit, uh, promoters with very lucrative profession, by the way, if you ever need a job, um, just, you know, there's plenty of money to be made in that field. Um, and those people were also in place already, uh, also in public health, 
because a lot of money gets funneled that way down that, those channels. And so those people were activated as well. So, so when you see, when you see how fast this thing switched on, part of it was the, the news media lying, but part of it was you had a public health infrastructure that was saturated with CDC and NIH and Fauci uh, scammers, basically grifters. Some of them knowingly, some of them unknowingly. We're talking thousands of people in place ready to, you know, take orders. I guess what, um, you know, we haven't made much progress with treating cancer, but we've gotten really good at human manipulation and <laughs> manipulation. So we're like, uh, you know, am- amazing superstar doctors in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we haven't, we, it's been a while since we put a man on the moon, but, but yeah, we can, we can sell any, any matter of bullshit. Yeah, it's so. Again, I'm functionally optimistic in that you know we're alive and humanity's lived for a long time, and uh, it's never been easy. You know, there are certain populations that have you know, you know, I think of you know, villagers in rural Vietnam waking up one morning and B-52s are flying over their heads, dropping bombs on their rice fields, and they don't know why and what, and you know, and we're kind, we're not as in that bad a situation, but. Um, it's comparable. It's comparable. You know, we're, 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 we're minding our own business, you know, going about our lives. And next thing we know, we turn the TV on and, and the equivalent of a carpet bombing took place, uh, psychologically. And that's how they do it. You know, that's how they do it. Uh, shock and awe. Um, and, uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, <laughs> functionally. Well, be- very good. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the chance because I, if yeah. I didn't, if I, it, surprisingly few people are interested in interviewing me and, and I appreciate that you are. No, I appreciate it, Ken. It's been, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure this stuff out. I've been, that's what I've been asking and asking. And yeah, this is great. And I, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.